Chapter Four of the Invasion by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Four: A Prophecy Fulfilled. This authentic news of the position of the enemy, combined with the vague rumors of other landings at Yarmouth along the coast at some unknown point north of Cromer, at King's Lynn, and other places, produced an enormous sensation in London while the central news account circulated to all the papers in the Midlands and Lancashire increased the panic in the manufacturing districts. The special edition of the Evening Star, issued about six o'clock on Tuesday evening, contained another remarkable story which threw some further light upon the German movements. It was, of course, known that practically the whole of the Norfolk and Suffolk coast were already held by the enemy, but with the exception of the fact that the enemy's cavalry, videttes, and reconnoitering patrols were out everywhere at a distance about twenty miles from the shore, England was entirely in the dark as to what had occurred anywhere else but at Lowestoft. Attempts had been made to penetrate the cavalry screen at various points, but in vain. What was in progress was carefully kept a secret by the enemy. The veil was, however, now lifted. The story which the Evening Star had obtained exclusively, and which was eagerly read everywhere, had been related by a man named Scotney, a lobster fisherman of Sheringham in Norfolk, who had made the following statement to the chief officer of the Coast Guard at Wainfleet in Lincolnshire. Just before dawn on Sunday morning I was in the boat with my son Ted, off the Robin Friend, taking up the lobster pots, when we suddenly saw about three miles offshore a mixed lot of curious-looking craft strung out right across the horizon and heading apparently for Cromer. There were steamers big and little, many of them towing queer flat-bottomed kind of boats, lighters and barges, which on approaching nearer we could distinctly see were filled to their utmost capacity with men and horses. Both Ted and I stood staring at the unusual sight, wondering whatever it meant. They came on very quickly, however, so quickly indeed that we thought it best to move on. The biggest ships went along to Weybourne Gap, where they moored in the twenty-five feet of water that runs in close to the shore, while some smaller steamers and the flats were run high and dry on the hard shingle. Before this I noticed that there were quite a number of foreign warships in the offing, with several destroyers far away in the distance both to east and west. From the larger steamships all sorts of boats were lowered, including apparently many collapsible whaleboats, and into these, in a most orderly manner, from every gangway and accommodation ladder, troops, Germans we afterwards discovered them to be, to our utter astonishment, began to descend. These boats were at once taken charge of by the steam pinnaces and cutters and towed to the beach. When we saw this we were utterly dumbfounded. Indeed, at first I believed it to be a dream, for ever since I was a lad I had heard the ancient rhyme my old father was so fond of repeating. He who would old England win must at Weybourne Hoop begin. As everybody knows, nature has provided at that lonely spot every advantage for the landing of hostile forces, and when the Spanish Armada was expected, and again when Napoleon threatened an invasion, the place was constantly watched. Yet nowadays, except for the Coast Guard, it has been utterly unprotected and neglected. The very first soldiers who landed formed up quickly, 
and under the charge of an officer ran up the low hill to the Coast Guard station, I suppose in order to prevent them signaling a warning. The funny thing was, however, that the Coast Guards had already been held up by several well-dressed men, spies of the Germans, I suppose. I could distinctly see one man holding one of the guards with his back to the wall and threatening him with a revolver. Ted and I had somehow been surrounded by the crowd of odd craft which dodged about everywhere, and the foreigners now and then shouted to me words that, unfortunately, I could not understand. Meanwhile, from all the boats strung out along the beach, from Sheringham right across to the rocket house at Salt House, swarms of drab-coated soldiers were disembarking, the boats immediately returning to the steamers for more. They must have been packed as tightly as herrings in a barrel, but they all seemed to know where to go to, because all along at various places little flags were held by men, and each regiment appeared to march across and assemble at its own flag. Ted and I sat there as if we were watching a play. Suddenly we saw from some of the ships in bigger barges horses being lowered into the water and allowed to swim ashore. Hundreds seemed to gain the beach even as we were looking at them. Then, after the first lot of horses had gone, boats full of saddles followed them. It seemed as though the foreigners were too busy to notice us, and we, not wanting to share the fate of Mr. Gunter, the Coast Guard, and his mates, just sat tight and watched. From the steamers there continued to pour hundreds upon hundreds of soldiers, who were towed to land, and then formed up in solid squares which got bigger and bigger. Horses innumerable, quite a thousand, I should reckon, were slung overboard from some of the smaller steamers which had been run high and dry on the beach, and as the tide had now begun to run down they landed only knee-deep in water. Those steamers, it seemed to me, had big bilge keels, for as the tide ebbed they did not heel over. They had no doubt been specially fitted for the purpose. Out of some they began to hoist all sorts of things, weapons, guns, motor-cars, large bales of fodder, clothing, ambulances with big red crosses on them, flat-looking boats, pontoons, I think they call them, and great piles of cooking pots and pans, square boxes of stores, or perhaps ammunition, and as soon as anything was landed it was hauled up above high-water mark. In the meantime lots of men had mounted on horseback and ridden off up the lane which leads into Wayborn village. At first half a dozen started at a time, then, as far as I could judge, about fifty more started. Then larger bodies went forward, but more and more horses kept going ashore as though their number was never ending. They must have been stowed mighty close, and many of the ships must have been specially fitted up for them. Very soon I saw cavalry swarming up over Muckleburg, Warborough, and Telegraph Hills, while a good many trotted away in the direction of Runton and Sheringham. Then, soon after they had gone, that is, in about an hour and a half from their first arrival, the infantry began to move off, and as far as I could see they marched inland by every road, some in the direction of Kelling Street and Holt, others over Weybourne Heath towards Bottom, and still others skirting the woods over to Upper Sheringham. Large masses of infantry marched along the Sheringham Road and seemed to have a lot of officers on horseback with them, while up on Muckleburg Hill I saw frantic signaling in progress. By this time they had a quantity of carts and wagons landed and a large number of motor-cars. 
The latter were soon started, and manned by infantry, moved swiftly in procession after the troops. The great idea of the Germans was apparently to get the beach clear of everything as soon as it landed, for all stores, equipment, and other tackle were pushed inland as soon as disembarked. The enemy kept on landing. Thousands of soldiers got ashore without any check, and all proceeding orderly and without the slightest confusion, as though the plans were absolutely perfect. Everybody seemed to know exactly what to do. From where we were we could see the Coast Guards held prisoners in their station, with German sentries mounted around, and as the tide was now setting strong to the westward, Ted and I just let our anchor off the ground and allowed ourselves to drift. It occurred to me that perhaps I might be able to give the alarm at some other Coast Guard station if I could only drift away unnoticed in the busy scene now in progress. That the Germans had actually landed in England, now apparent, yet we wondered what our own fleet could be doing and pictured to ourselves the jolly good drubbing that our cruisers would give the audacious foreigner when they did haul in sight. It was for us, at all costs, to give the alarm, so gradually we drifted off to the northwestward in fear every moment lest we should be noticed and fired at. At last we got around Blakeney Point successfully and breathed more freely. Then, hoisting our sail, we headed for Hunstanton, but seeing numbers of ships entering the wash, and believing them to be also Germans, we put our helm down and ran across into Waynefleet Swatchway to Gibraltar Point, where I saw the chief officer of Coast Guards and told him all the extraordinary events of that memorable morning. The report added that the officer of Coast Guard in question had, three hours before, noticed strange vessels coming up the wash, and had already tried to report by telegraph to his divisional inspecting officer at Harwich but could obtain no communication. An hour later, however, it had become apparent that a still further landing was being effected on the south side of the wash, in all probability at King's Lynn. The fisherman Scotney's statement had been sent by special messenger from Wainfleet on Sunday evening, but owing to the dislocation of the railway traffic north of London, the messenger was unable to reach the offices of the Coast Guard in Victoria Street, Westminster, until Monday. The report received by the Admiralty had been treated as confidential until corroborated, lest undue public alarm should be caused. It had then been given to the press as revealing the truth of what had actually happened. The enemy had entered by the back door of England, and the sensation it caused everywhere was little short of panic. Some further very valuable information was also received by the Intelligence Department of the War Office revealing the military position of the invaders who had landed at Weybourne Hoop. The whole of the 4th German Army Corps, about 38,000 men, had been landed at Weybourne, Sheringham, and Cromer. It consisted of the 7th and 8th Divisions complete, commanded respectively by Major General Dickman and Lieutenant General von Mirbach. The 7th Division comprised the 13th and 14th Infantry Brigades, consisting of Prince Leopold of Anhalt de Salz, 1st Magdeburg Regiment, the 3rd Magdeburg Infantry Regiment, Prince Louis Ferdinand von Prussen's 2nd Magdeburg Regiment, and the 5th Hanover Infantry Regiment. Attached to this division were the Magdeburg Hussars No. 10 and the Ulan Regiment of Altmark No. 16. In the 8th Division were the 15th and 16th Brigades, comprising a Magdeburg Fusilier Regiment, an Anhalt Infantry Regiment, 
the 4th and 8th Thuringen Infantry, with the Magdeburg Cuirassiers and a regiment of Thuringen Hussars. The cavalry were commanded by Colonel Fröhlich, while German von Kleppen was in supreme command of the whole corps. Careful reconnaissance of the occupied area showed that immediately on landing the German position extended from the little town of Holt on the west eastward along the main Cromer Road as far as Gibbet Lane, slightly south of Cromer, a distance of about five miles. This constituted a naturally strong position. Indeed, nature seemed to have provided it specially to suit the necessities of a foreign invader. The ground for miles to the south sloped gently away down to the plain, while the rear was completely protected, so that the landing could proceed until every detail had been completed. Berlin um eins, Berlin um eins, das kleine Journal, Mittags Ausgabe, Berlin Montag den 3 September 1910, Triumph der Deutsche Waffen, Vernichtung der Englischen Flotte, von Kronhelm auf dem Vormarsche, nach London. Artillery were massed on both flanks, namely at Holt and on the high ground near Felbrig, immediately south of Cromer. This last-named artillery was adequately supported by the detached infantry close at hand. The whole force was covered by a strong line of outposts. Their advanced sentries were to be found along a line starting from Thornage Village through Huntworth, Edgefield, Barningham Green, Squalham, Aldborough, Hanworth, to Ruffton. In rear of them lay their pickets which were disposed in advantageous situations. The general line of these latter were at North Street, Pond Hills to Plumstead, thence over to Matlash Hall, Aldborough Hall, and the rising ground north of Hanworth. These, in their turn, were adequately supplemented by the supports which were near Hempstead Green, Beaconsthorpe, North Narningham, Bessingham, Sustead, and Melton. In case of sudden attack, reserves were at Bottom, West Beckham, East Beckham, and Aylmerton, but orders had been issued by Van Kleppen, who had established his headquarters at Upper Sheringham, that the line of resistance was to be as already indicated, namely that having the Holt-Cromer Road for its crest. Cuirassiers, Hussars, and some motorists, commanded by Colonel von Dorndorf, were acting independently some fifteen miles to the south, scoring the whole country, terrifying the villagers, commandeering all supplies, and posting von Kronhelm's proclamation, which has already been reproduced. From inquiries it was shown that on the night of the invasion six men, now known to have been advanced agents of the enemy, arrived at the ship-in at Weybourne. Three of them took accommodation for the night, while their companions slept elsewhere. At two o'clock the trio let themselves out quietly, were joined by six other men, and just as the enemy's ships hove in sight, Nine of them seized the coast guards and cut the wires, while the other three broke into the Weybourne stores and, drawing revolvers, obtained possession of the telegraph instrument to Sheringham and Cromer until they could hand it over to the Germans. That the Fourth German Army Corps were in a position as strong as those who landed at Lowestoft could not be denied, and the military authorities could not disguise from themselves the extreme gravity of the situation. End of chapter 4, recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.